Hello, and welcome to the alternate timeline. We have a double feature bonus podcast today because um, we're going to do two at once. You buckle up. We're going to do some behind the scenes stuff for both the Can You Find This Human episode and the What If We Could Drink Technology episode. There are a couple of reasons why the bonus episode for Can You Find This Human did not happen two weeks ago when it was supposed to. And I won't get into all of them, but one of them, the main one, is that the house that I currently live in got repainted on the outside, um, which is great. And uh, maybe you all knew this, but I did not. Apparently, when you uh, have a house repainted, it's actually like a very loud process. <laughs> I did not think of that. So this was I actually recorded it. This was the sound that I was trying to get work done while it was happening. And that sound lasted for like a week and a half. Um, Just a lot of scraping. I had no idea there was so much scraping involved uh, when you paint a house. So as you can imagine, that is not great for like thinking, but also not great for recording anything. Um, So I did manage to sneak in time for tracking for the episodes, but um, I did not manage to find time to get the bonus podcast done. Um, And so we're going to do two for one today. Uh, We'll get them both done. So we're going to talk about facial recognition and about nanotech, and then we're going to do some other like general behind the scenes stuff. So um, let's start with, let's start in chronological order. Let's start with the facial recognition episode. So I found out about the whole like find Satoshi thing via this online community that I'm in called XOXO, um, which is slash was, I guess, a conference that used to happen every year in Portland. Obviously, COVID has made that impossible for a while. Um And a lot of people in the XOXO world are like game makers, game players. Um, There's a whole like XOXO arcade section of the conference, which is just about games. I actually was able to test out some games as they were being developed that I still play to this day, including a game called Beasts of Balance, which I really love. Um, And Laura Hall, who you heard in the episode, is actually in the XOXO world. Um, and so I know her from that. And so when they did find Satoshi, people in this Slack started posting about it. Um, and Laura talked a little bit about it. And I was like, whoa, like I had never heard of it. I thought it was really interesting. Um, and in particular, um, I was interested because I am like very much not a puzzle person. Um, and this is something that Laura and I actually talked about in our interview. Like I'm just, I'm not good at puzzles. I feel like my brain doesn't really think that way. Um, and in this case, like lateral thinking puzzles, not like jigsaw puzzles. Jigsaw puzzles I'm actually pretty good at. But these more kind of like, can you solve a riddle puzzle? I just sort of feel like my brain doesn't really like have that built in. Um, and I know that like much like anything, I could probably, practice it and I could get better at it. But I do find puzzles like frustrating and honestly like not that satisfying. Even when I do figure them out, I don't have that thing of like, ah, yes, I got it. Um, I just like, I don't know. I'm just not that person. Um, I'm interested in a lot of other things. I have other hobbies. I have other ways of thinking that I like. Um, but I'm really interested in people who do like puzzles, um, especially these like really big dramatic puzzles. Um, There was this book that I had as a kid called 11th Hour that many of the people that I talked to about this story actually brought up. Um, Maybe you had this book. If you didn't have the book, it's this beautiful 
um, children's book. Um, it's really beautifully illustrated. It's about a birthday party for an elephant, and there's a mystery. And on every page, there are these sort of hidden puzzles. Um, I had this book as a kid. I don't think that for a very long time I even realized that there were puzzles to be had in this book. It was like not a thing I was ever thinking about or looking at. And then when someone did tell me there were puzzles, I don't think that I managed to solve like a single one of the puzzles in it. Um, and that probably solidified this idea that I had as a kid that and today that I'm not good at puzzles. Um, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine named Jess Zimmerman wrote this amazing piece about a similar book called Masquerade, which seems, again, like a simple children's book about a rabbit. But beneath all of that was a much bigger puzzle. And if you could figure out the puzzle, it would lead you to a real physical prize, an actual buried treasure, which was a golden hair made by the author and artist named Kit Williams. So this book was incredibly popular in the UK. It sold like 2 million copies in just a couple of years. And Zimmerman writes about how this puzzle and this quest made a lot of people in the UK like kind of lose their grasp on reality. Um, it's really interesting. I'll link to that piece in the show notes. Um, I highly recommend reading it. It's a good read. And so for me, like this fanatical, like sort of like obsession with figuring out puzzles is really fascinating because I don't have that. Like I don't have that drive. <laughs> um, and and like literally people have um, died and almost died trying to play these games and find these hidden treasures. So in October of 2002, someone slipped and fell and nearly died trying to solve another ARG mystery game. Uh, four different people have died trying to find a supposedly buried treasure in the Rocky Mountains that was, again, supposedly buried by a millionaire named Forrest Fenn. And most of these people are like, obviously, they're motivated by money, right? If you think there's like a really valuable buried treasure somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, you go find it or you're trying to find it. Um, but like in a lot of these cases, these are not people who are doing this for survival, right? They're not desperately poor. They're not doing this because their lives depend on it. They're doing it for the money, but also they're doing it because they like the puzzle and the satisfaction of being the one to solve the puzzle. And a lot of these folks actually do have the time and resources to go out and like search for these things, which you don't necessarily have if you are like actually very poor. Um, and I think that like that again is like a reason I just, I can't relate. <laughs> and so I, um, I think that's the reason why I'm fascinated is because I, I just like cannot relate to this. Like if I can't figure something out on a puzzle, I'll just like look up the answer. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, but I will say that if you are like me and you're not really a puzzle person, but you want to be a puzzle person, I recommend checking out Laura's new book. Yeah, that's sort of what my book is about that's coming out this year. Um, it's for people who have never played escape rooms before. Because yeah, there are things to know and sets of expectations that you would have as an experienced player that would be really baffling if you've never encountered that stuff before. So yeah, that's the, the whole idea with the book. I'll link to the book in the show notes. Okay, so on to things that we cut um, from this episode. So one of the things that we didn't get into, it's a small thing, but I think it's kind of funny, is that um, Laura for a long time had a Google alert for Satoshi, you know, like just in case. Obviously, Satoshi is like a pretty common name. Um, and there was, in fact, a news story that kind of like made that uh, Google alert sort of useless for a while. Uh, you know, it sort of muddied the waters a bit when the Bitcoin founders... Satoshi Nakamoto's alias was became part of that conversation. To be clear, this Satoshi is not the Bitcoin Satoshi. 
Another thing we wound up cutting um, is just like a little fun fact about Laura and her husband that's sort of sweet and related to this whole episode. Um, And that comes from a Wired story about the whole saga. Laura and her husband Jay met in San Francisco in 2006. Um, That's the official story. But technically, they had already been in the same room without realizing it. And we know this because there is a photo of Laura looking over her future husband's shoulder at an event held in London. So in the spirit of like, could you find the person in the background of a photo if Jay had done that and met Laura? Well, they did end up meeting and they got married. So it's just very cute. Um, Okay. The last thing that we cut from the facial recognition episode was about questions around like ethics and the public perception of facial recognition technology um, and sort of like nihilism. So I asked Kate Klonick um, about the kind of Uh, I think like I I call it nihilism. I don't know if that's technically correct. Um, But this sort of attitude that I see sometimes online where people are like, well, you know, the cat's out of the bag. There's like no point in caring about privacy anymore. Like there's nothing we can do. So like what's the point of even like getting upset about it? And her answer was actually really interesting, I thought. I used to be that way a little bit. I'll just be honest. I think that before I started studying this, I was like – People will adjust. Things change. The line between public and private is always moving. This will just, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I I think that now, after probably 15 years, I started... Um, so the story Kate is telling uh, is about to use a person's name who we're going to edit out because we didn't ask for permission to, like, use this story about her. So um, just it's just a friend. We're just going to call it a friend here. But I remember having this conversation with her about facial recognition. And we went out for breakfast the morning it came out. And she was like, I was like, so what do you think? Like, what do you think they should do with this tech? And she was like, I we used to agree. Like, we used to think that basically people would update this and that it wasn't going to be possible to have regulation. And she's like, We've been doing this for 15 years and people are still just as shocked at these stories and like people have not updated their their priors about the privacy that they expect to be having in these places. And so I'm kind of starting to think that that's never going to happen and maybe there should be some protections for people. But yeah, it like I think that that's right. I think that like there was room to be a little bit of like a libertarian and a little bit of a nihilist in this space and I think that there are, are ways now that this in the hands of government, in particular authoritarian governments, is absolutely petrifying. And we're not going to be able to, like, outrun the technology. The technology is going to happen. But we can, like, actually just make, like, rules about how the police use it and about, like, basic, basically how it's marketed to consumers. So that's really all we did wind up cutting from the episode. It was a pretty economical one, at least like in terms of what we used and we didn't use. Now, on to nanotechnology. Again, this one we actually didn't end up cutting a ton of stuff. Um, We got to include most of what we wanted to get into there. Um, Nanotech is obviously a huge topic and we obviously like can't get into everything or every application. But one thing I do think is interesting maybe – and like kind of behind the scenesy stuff that you might not realize about reporting and reporting on particularly things like nanotechnology is that one thing that you always have to kind of look out for when you're covering a field like this, like nanotech or nanomedicine, is that it can be really hard to find experts who are both doing cutting edge research, but who also like don't have patents or financial interests in specific products in the field. So we talked on the episode about how at some point, like for a lot of this stuff, if you're studying it in the lab and it doesn't end up in the hands of doctors or engineers or whoever, then like there may be a question of 
what's the point of this research because a lot of this is ostensibly applied, right? Things that should, you know, make things work better <laughs> in whatever field you're in. But at the same time, there is like a very real conflict of interest thing that can happen when someone is financially connected to a technology that they also research. Um, this is why if you look at scientific papers, there is often a section at the end that um, researchers are sort of required to disclose whether they have any kind of conflicts of interest, whether they have, you know, um, stocks in a company or whether they founded a company that's related to the thing. Um, and you always want to look at that whenever you evaluate any research. Um and like I, I should say, it's it's less that like you can't interview people who have patents or businesses connected to their work, like that they're inherently unethical or inherently, you know, hyping this more than it is necessarily true. But it's just something that you always want to kind of be aware of, right? And like look for and look for what those ties are and what those companies are and sort of what stage they might be in. And is this a period of time where they actually need to drum up a lot of attention for that product? And that might be why they want to talk to you. All that stuff is stuff to like be thinking about if you are me, right? Not if you are you, the listener. Hopefully, when you're listening to stuff um, or reading stuff about this, the journalist has done that work already and decided sort of like where they stand on disclosing that stuff and who to interview and who not to interview. Um, the other thing I think is kind of interesting as like a little bit of a case study about how fields of science work is the way in which nanotechnology has kind of this dual identity. Um, so I was reading a lot of papers from the early 2000s about nanotech, both papers and op-eds and all these things. And there was this really interesting sort of phenomenon that was happening around then where the field was kind of trying to establish itself as completely new and special and separate from like regular chemistry or regular engineering or regular medicine. And the reason for that is that it's really hard to get published in journals, right? There are lots of people doing research, especially if you look at the sort of top tier journals like Science or Nature or Chemistry or some of those top um, journals, there's only so many spots, right? Um, and so if you kind of want to carve out a niche for yourself in science, you want to kind of have your own journal and maybe even have your own grants and kind of be considered special and new and separate so you can get funding and attention. And so early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, you had a lot of people in nanotech kind of being like, no, no, we are different. We need our own journals. We need our own, like everything is totally different. We are like a different discipline. Like these things, they're not the same. Um, but there's like a flip side to that, right? So if, for example, you really are creating a fundamentally new kind of engineering, chemistry, medicine, then you are also then on the hook for questions like, okay, is the safety and ethics here also fundamentally new and different? Um, and are you ready to develop that framework too? Do you have to go through totally different and new ethics review boards, right? If you are arguing that this is a completely new field of science, do you also then have to figure out what the completely new ethics are and completely new safety policies are? And that is not something that most scientists like want to have to do because um, it's hard and complicated. Um, and then there's, of course, like that question of public perception, right? There are upsides and downsides of promoting a whole field of science as completely new and unlike anything that has come before, right? That can be good for drumming up interest. It could also be bad for making people afraid. And so in reading the papers in the field and the essays and the op-eds and the responses to those op-eds, it was really interesting to kind of get this picture of a field struggling to kind of like in some ways have its cake and eat it too on these fronts. Be like, we're new, but we're not that new. Like, yeah, we need our own journal, but like all the ethics stuff can be the same. Um, 
And that's just like a really interesting kind of like place for a newish field to be in. Um, and I think, you know, is a little bit in the weeds and kind of like a identity philosophical thing about the way that we talk about science and technology. But um, it's a thing I thought was really interesting and it was noticing as I was doing research for this episode. The only thing we really cut um, science-wise on the episode was pretty short. It was a thing from Yunji who works on something called self-assembly. Um, and to me, that sounds like very science fiction, right? These like nanoparticles that can self-assemble. Um, but, and I asked her about it, and it's actually not quite like as spooky high-tech as that might sound. So here's what that actually means. Yeah, that's that's true. I haven't even thought about it like that. You know, self-assembly is a science. It just means that you're you know, having these like chemical bonds or some sort of interaction that, you know, to tune, um, to tune something and for it to develop into a bigger architecture. That's ultimately the simplified version of what I think it means. So for instance, when I, when I tell you about your, the micelles, um, the, the micelles actually have these individual components like Legos, right? Um, and they, you know, one side of it is oily and the other side of it is water loving, but they're connected. The peptide is the part that likes water um, and dissolves in water, but then the oily part doesn't, but you've tethered them together. Um, and so if you throw a bunch of those molecules together into water, let's say, you know, an environment like our bodies, they're going to self-assemble in a specific way. And this is ultimately to conserve energy at the end of the day, but all of the water components are going to be kind of closer to the water components, the, the you know, the, the blood, the outer part, all the oily parts are going to want to stick together. They, they want to be away from that kind of, you know, the way that your um, vinaigrette, right, like your uh, salad dressing is that that oil is on one side and the water part is on the other side. And so that's simply what it means. I mean, you're doing a self-assembly in a large scale when you're using your vinaigrette, you know, Um and that's what our nanoparticles are able to do by tuning the length of those molecules and then having those individual kind of blocks. Uh, and then if when you place them in a certain concentration, you allow the oily parts to gather together and the water loving parts to um, be presented on the outside. And there's a little bit, you know, there's a little bit more design there, but just to simplify it, that's that's how the nanoparticles are formed. Yeah, in, in, in an aqueous or a water environment. Okay, that was what was on the cutting room floor for both episodes. Pretty quick, pretty efficient, I suppose. Um, a couple of quick notes about programming and ads. Um, so I mentioned in a past episode that there were some questions about BetterHelp um, and the ethics of taking those ads. I did do some more reading and some more thinking. And what I decided was that we'll run the ads that have been purchased already. So you're going to hear them um, for a little while. We have these contracts with them, and I'm not going to break those contracts, but we're not going to renew any BetterHelp ads. So you will hear them on the show until those orders are fulfilled, but you won't hear any new ones. So that's where I kind of landed on that. Um, the other thing is that I have talked a little bit about next year for Flash Forward and how it's going to be different from what you've gotten used to over the last seven years, which I still can't believe it's been seven years. Um, I don't have a ton more to say about that because frankly, like we're still trying to figure out exactly what that looks like. And I think I won't really know until we're able to like finish this season, take a little break and then start brainstorming. So I don't want to like get too ahead of myself promising like what it's going to be because like the whole point of this is that it's going to be something different and that I need to figure it out. Um, but I do want you to know that um, so far, the only people who know this are you guys um, on and like patrons and supporters, time travelers, 
And that so the plan is to kind of like announce to the wider Patreon world, the people who don't get the bonus podcast, put it in the newsletter, put it on the sort of like Patreon page. Um, and that's going to be next week. And then I'm going to kind of like let the world know um, in the main podcast on November 9th, which is when the first episode of our four-part season and show finale is going to kick off. So slowly kind of like titrating out this information. Um, I don't really know why, but I feel like I need to kind of like slowly let people know um, because there are going to be changes to things like the Patreon page and um, I'm still kind of like figuring that stuff out. But I want to give everybody like a pretty long lead time on that so you you know. So it's not like any, a huge surprise. Um, anyway, more excitingly, to celebrate the conclusion of Flash Forward 1.0, which is what I've been calling it, where it's like we're ending Flash Forward 1.0 and then next year will be whatever the Flash Forward 2.0 is. I don't know what it is yet, but that's what's happening. Um, I'm working on a bunch of things to kind of like celebrate and thank Frank mostly like you guys, you um, use guys, um, <laughs> you folks who are supporting. So I mentioned this in the newsletter, but I have created little playing cards for some of my favorite episodes, and I'm going to mail those out to supporters, patrons, time travelers. I'm also going to do kind of a random mailing of like signed books and posters, a bunch of leftover merch that I have, and I'm making a special um, Flash Forward 1.0 poster, which has um, all the art from all like 100, I think we're at 120 six episodes, something like that, 130 maybe. Um, and so you're going to, it's like just a grid of like all the art that we ever had on the show. Um, and that is going to go out only to supporters. Um, and I will post about that, how to get one of those soon. Um, I got to get them ordered and get them, get, get the shipping figured out, but I'm going to, there's going to be a bunch of stuff. There's going to be a bunch of stuff. <laughs> um, and the other thing is I'm also going to create a supporters only online event. That's going to be like weird and fun and hopefully exciting. It's not just going to be like me on a Zoom because like who that's boring. So it's going to be weird and interesting um, and a little experimental and I hope it works. And if it doesn't, I hope that it's still fun, even if it doesn't work the way I think it's might be might work. So anyway, um, lots of stuff coming our way to sort of celebrate the conclusion of the show as we all know it. Um, lots of exciting things, hopefully. Um, and I'll keep you all up to date. Um, okay. That's pretty much it for this bonus podcast. Um, I'm going to, we'll do the secret. Um, and the secret is, um, I've been doing a lot of secrets that involve like this whole pottery setup thing, but that's what I'm, that's like literally what I've been doing that isn't work. <laughs> so it's all I have. Um, but I, my secret this week is that I, I finally got my reclaim setup working, which basically means that, you know, when you throw pots on the wheel, um, you end up like with a lot of excess clay that you either remove or that gets kind of like squished out of the thing. And you don't really want to throw that away because it's like you could reuse it. But the reusing it process requires like a couple of steps. So I set up my whole little system. I got it working and um, it's happening. So it's in in the garage. Uh, the reclaim setup is working. That's very exciting. Um, okay. Uh, we will be back in your ears next week with a very special episode that is actually kind of a, a sister episode to the nanomedicine episode and is also a Julia episode. So I'm excited that you're going to hear them on the mic again. Um, and until then, I hope you all have an excellent week. Okay. Bye. <laughs>